For those who don't know me, my name is Tom Arrington, and I got an early Christmas present. The church made me a pastor, and so I was thrilled about that. I probably, every time I talk, I will say that to you. Um, we are currently in our series, This Is Our Story. Kevin and Danielle started the series off uh, with the creation story. It was a story where God spoke, and as he did, he created, and it was good. And God made male and female in his image, and with his breath, he filled us with his spirit, and it was good. And so the key message from that weekend was, we, my friends, we were made good. Last week, we heard from Danielle, who talked about how in Eden, there was harmony between God and creation, and everything was good, but then we ate the fruit, and things changed. We were fallen, and now we experience strife, abuse, shame, uh, suffering, and natural calamities. Cain kills Abel, and now we live lives distorting the image of God. And God decided to start again, to give us a second chance. So he brings a flood, which is like a baptism of the earth, washing away all of the sin, and then he brings new life. And the message from last week is that our God loves us so much that he gives us how many chances? A gazillion chances. So when we fall, we need to get back up because our God runs to us to give us mercy again and again because that is who he is. That is our God. This morning, we're going to look specifically at the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. It's a famous story in the Bible. It's also one of the most debated and you've probably read it, or maybe you've seen the movie, movie with Russell Crowe playing Noah, or maybe Steve Carell and Evan Almighty. Our goal, as a reminder in the series, is not to get stuck in the weeds or mired in the details, though details and facts are important. Our goal is to focus on why the story was written and to answer several questions. What was the main message? What should be our takeaway from the story when we leave here tonight? And how should this story affect our lives? So here we go. One of my first memories uh, as a child is of my mother getting together all the neighborhood kids, bringing them into our house one summer to put on a puppet show about Noah and the ark. We rounded up the kids, we made the puppets, and we learned how to work and control those puppets. Not well, but we controlled them. And then we learned several Noah and the Ark songs, classics, if I say so myself. Let's see if you know this song. Okay, how many of you know that song? Quite a few. The rest of you who don't know the song, you're not crazy. It's just some of these people have been in lots of Sunday school classes, a lot of vacation Bible schools, and then when you go there, they teach you these songs, and they just stay in your head. 
for the rest of your life. They're always with you year after year after year. Did you know, I didn't know this, archie is an actual word. It is. It means someone who has stayed in old fashion as though you just came off the ark. Okay, but the truth is, and I hate to be the one to break this to you, millions of kids learn this cute little song about Noah and his seven relatives on the ark with pairs of every kind of cute animal out there while God sent a flood to kill and annihilate every other living thing from the face of the earth. And some of you are going, that's not good. You're saying, what? What does that mean? This is actually an awful story. It is. I mean, I want it to be happy, but it's an awful story. It's completely terrifying. There are no fun and cheerful images in the story. And you know what? There was no verse for that in that kid's song. But maybe, just maybe, in the light of the devastating news we've, we've heard recently with the hurricanes, with the shooting in Las Vegas, with the truck attack in New York, with, and most recently with the shooting in the church in Texas, this story of God and Noah is begging to be retold. As I said, letting the story tell us the truth is what we're after. We want to get the message to the story without getting stuck and trying to figure out whether the events in this story literally happened the way they were told. And now our congregation is diverse, it is, with people from many backgrounds. And so there are some of us here who will not hear the story of Noah if they don't think that it literally happened. That there was a, world flood, a worldwide flood and there were two of every animals put on the ark. And there are some of us here who won't really hear the story of Noah and the ark if they think that they have to believe the events actually happened as described for them They see this story of the flood as proof that the Bible is a primitive book and deeply out of touch with the modern world. Well, truth is, no one knows for sure what exactly happened. Whether there was a worldwide flood or a local flood, or whether it happened at all. But that is not our focus today. Our focus is on the important message that we can learn from this story. People in the ancient world told stories about floods, lots of stories. And why would they tell these stories? Imagine if you had no pictures of Earth from outer space, no weather reports, no Google images, no airplanes. Imagine if you'd never been more than a mile from where you were born. And then imagine a flash flood comes, massive, undulating, swirling, terrifying water coming at you out of nowhere and wiping out your house and your crops uh, and your family. Um, Imagine what that would do to your psyche. You would do what we all do when we suffer. You would look for causes. And in the ancient world, it was generally agreed upon that the forces that caused this were the gods who had had it up to here with humans and all their backstabbing, depraved ways and had decided to unleash their wrath upon man and woman. That's how people saw the world at that time. That's how people explained floods. The Sumerians told flood stories. The Africans told flood stories. The Babylonians told flood stories. Stories about water and its destructive power to wipe out towns, cities, civilizations, and people. They were very common in the ancient world. 
There were even stories about people building boats to survive this flood. In these flood stories, all that water coming to destroy humanity was often believed to be divine judgment for all the ways people had made a mess of things. The gods are angry, it was believed, and a flood was their way of clearing the deck to start over. The flood story, most similar to the one we find in our scripture, is the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh, which dates back to nearly 5,000 years B.C., and it is thought to be the oldest written tale on the planet. In it, there's an account of the great sage Utnapishtim, who is warned of an imminent flood to be unleashed by wrathful gods. So he builds a vast circular boat that is reinforced with tar and pit that carries his relatives, his food, and his animals. And after ending the days of storms, Utnapishtim, like Noah in Genesis Get this, he releases a bird to search out dry land, and when it returns with a, t- a twig, it proves there is dry land coming. Does that sound familiar? So when we come to a story about a flood in the book of Genesis, it's not that unusual. This flood in Genesis, the one where Noah builds an ark and his family and the animals wait out the storm in the boat, this story is like the other flood stories because this God is like the other gods, fed up with the depravity of humanity and unleashes divine wrath in the form of a flood. But then, this story does something strange. It ends with, divine, with a divine insistence that this is never going to happen again. God brings a rainbow and then makes a covenant with Noah, an oath a relational bond between two beings. This was not how the other stories ended. In those stories, the gods are angry and everybody dies and the gods are satisfied. End of story. But this God in the Genesis story, it is different. The God commits to living with people in a new way, a way in which life is preserved and respected. This God of who we read about in the Old Testament has deep feelings and connections to creation. Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The way the story is told in Genesis uh, is that we don't see God as a maniacally angry, but as heartbroken. As if God was devastated with disappointment that what was created, created out of love persistently chooses what is evil. What a sad line it is when God saw that every inclination of the human was evil all of the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. No wonder the Holocaust survivor and great Jewish author Uh, Elie Wiesel said that this is one of the most saddest and most depressing stories in Scripture. 
You only need to think back about three weeks ago to recall the road rage and killing in New York. And about seven weeks ago to when the Las Vegas shootings occurred. Do you remember the gut-wrenching pain that you felt? When you learned that eight people died by a man who drove a truck down a running path in New York City and just mowed people over. And we're still numb from how Stephen Paddock shot and killed 59 people and wounded 527 people from his rampage on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Resort and Casino. That did not happen that long ago. Do you remember that feeling? That may be something like God was feeling when God looked upon us, his creation, and saw that while we are made in God's image, we have a strong propensity towards violence and deceit. God is portrayed in this flood story not as furious, but as despondent, almost second-guessing the creation of humankind. In Genesis, the story is not framed by a God that is furious at slaves that do not obey, but parents who are besides themselves with grief when they see what their children are capable of. It's a bit more like Robert and Arlene Holmes, whose son James Holmes, who wore what prosecutors called his kill suit, shot up a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, filled with happy Batman fans at a midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises. The killing only took minutes, and yet there were 12 dead and 70 wounded. And in court, the parents, Arlene and Robert Holmes, sat behind their son, listening to the son's victims describe what happened in grim and sorrowful detail. The day that changed everything for them, July 20, 2012. Like God, I imagine they sat behind their son hearing these grim tales of woe. Like God, they loved their child. But like God, they may may have wondered, they must have wondered, what have we done? So in the flood account of Genesis, pairs of animals show up to board this massive boat that Noah has built while they're on it. It rains for 40 days, as chapter 7 says. The water then flooded the earth for 150 days. Everyone and everything that was not on the ark is destroyed. The story is like a massive reboot of creation. It's a reversal of God's good work in Genesis 1. Danielle talked a little bit about that last week. The cataclysmic result is a world returned to its pre-creation, formless and void. But we also find here a world given a second chance. God's first perfect world has been washed clean of the effects of the sins of Adam's generation. And what appears to be a complete emptiness will be repopulated by the passengers of the ark. God begins afresh with his fallen children. Noah, his family, and the animals are spared when the, animals, or the, when the ark lands on the mountains of Ararat. But it is almost another 150 days until the waters have receded enough that Noah and his family can go out on dry land. And when Noah can go out on dry land, he worships God. And the Lord says in Genesis 9, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant. Between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. 
Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. When our ears hear that God says that he will not destroy the earth with a flood again, some of us may think, could you add hurricanes, earthquakes, and tornadoes to the list of things you could use maybe not to destroy us with? But the point of the story in Genesis is not just to relieve us of a particular mode of destruction, but that the Lord makes a covenant not to destroy us. Even when we sadden God, even when we revolt against God, even when we ignore God altogether. A covenant in the ancient Near East was usually reached by two parties, a lord or emperor who ruled the land and his people or subjects, and they would make a covenant or a contract together. Most contracts today have stipulations for both parties, but in this covenant that God makes with Noah and with all humankind, the only one bound to faithfulness to completing the contract is God. This is one amazing covenant. And the story of God and Noah, God makes a covenant to be eternally faithful to unfaithful people because that is what God is like. It is just how God is. The hurricanes of late, they grieve the heart of God, but God did not send them to punish anyone or to play lightly with the lives of any human being. God is not like that. And God says that whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. The Hebrew word for rainbow is kashet, but the word also means a bow, as in bow and arrows. And this weapon, the bone, is frequently featured in ancient Near Eastern mythology. The interesting thing to consider is the arc of that rainbow. And if that arc represents a bow, a weapon, then this bow is actually pointed at God, meaning God will not destroy us. As God says in Genesis 8.21, God says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. In the other flood myths, the people were supposed to remain fearful and cowering before their gods who demonstrated this horrific power and control against them. The God who we read of in Genesis wants to know that even though the human heart didn't change after the flood, God's heart did. At least that's how the story reads. I don't personally think God's attitude toward us changed, or as my daughter likes to say, his game picked up. But that our understanding of God's attitude toward us changed. And when we see this, when we understand this, we get what seems like a better, richer, deeper understanding of God. Where we can now see something about God that we were missing before. We can see God's love and commitment to us despite what we do. So most of the world believes in karma. And why wouldn't you? Because it just means what goes around comes around. And, when, and karma works great with guilt-based religions to teach us that if we screw up, we will have to pay for that. And some people actually think that the hurricanes that we recently experienced are because God was ticked off because of the way we live, because of our moral failings. Even in Jesus' day, 
the, the disciples gravitated toward this type of cause and effect thing. We see this in John 9. When Jesus and the disciples walked by a blind man who was born blind, and the disciples asked, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Because something bad happened to this man, and they assumed that somebody had to have done something bad. And this is the cause, and that is why he has a bad effect. This is why he's blind. And the only question is, who did the bad thing that caused God to punish this man? And Jesus' response, his response is basically, he says, that is a messed up question. Who caused it? God is not causing this, uh, not punishing this man. But Jesus said, God is going to reveal his glory through this man when he gets his sight back. Karma is not even a a particularly religious notion. Any observer of life knows that karma, karma is definitely a thing. If you treat your friends poorly, don't be surprised when they treat you poorly in return. You're just getting what you deserve, and it happens all the time. But the covenant that God is introducing to Noah and to us is that weather may do whatever it will, but don't think that when tragedy happens, it is God causing tragedy to teach someone a lesson. The covenant God makes with Noah is a defining moment in our understanding of God. Sure, there are consequences, consequences to our actions. That's what karma teaches. But God doesn't want us to think that hurricanes are God's way of punishing us for being who we are, which are beautiful people who often do things that severely disappoint God. The covenant with Noah is God's way of acknowledging that karma happens, but so does grace. Grace interjects itself into the going around, coming around. Karma says, you get what you deserve. Grace says, you get what you need. Here's the point. God will never stop loving us no matter what we do. No matter how many James Holmes, Stephen Paddocks, or Tom Arrington's are out there screwing things up. Unlike all the other flood stories, God tells Noah, I am not going to destroy you. Though you may make me sad, I am not going to wipe you out. Even though you may bring harm to the earth, I'm not going to give up on you just because you give up on me. The story of Noah, it's a revelation of grace. It doesn't cancel out the law of karma that our actions have consequences, but it introduces the interjection of grace, which says that no matter how our actions harm or disappoint God, God is never going to destroy us because of it. The story of God Noah is a declaration to the humankind that God will never ever give up on us even when we give up on God. It's a story about a God whose heart can be broken by the cruelty and self-centeredness of humanity. But a God who remains nevertheless absolutely committed to us. This is not the God of any of the other flood myths. Friends, this story of Noah and the ark, this is our story. It's a story that sounds like many other stories that were written from places all over the world. Yet this flood story, this story of Noah in the book of Genesis, this one is different. It starts like the others with divine judgment in the flood, but then there's a twist in the end. Everybody doesn't die like in the other flood stories. A family is saved. 
And then a promise is made to them. Their story heads in a different direction, a very different direction, a direction involving rainbows and oaths and covenants. This was not how people talked about the gods. The gods are angry and vengeful. That's how people understood their gods. But this story, this story is about who God, who, a God who wants to relate, a God who wants to save, a God who wants to live in covenant. This story is about a new view of God, not a God who wants to wipe people out, but a God who wants to live in relationship. So yes, the story of Noah and the flood and the ark, it is a primitive story. Of course it is. It's a really, really old story. It reflects how people saw the world and explained what was happening around to them. It, it reflects how, uh, how people saw the world and explained um, you know, where problems were occurring. But to dismiss the story as ancient and primitive is to miss that at the time this story was first told, it was a mind-blowing new conception of a better, kinder, more peaceful God whose greatest intention for humanity is not violence, but peace and love. In this God, our God, made a covenant with humankind. And he put up a rainbow to remind us and him that no matter what, God is with us and God is for us. Let us pray. Father God, this is a hard story to understand. But as we go through it, Father, help us to understand who you are and your character. And the bottom line, you love us. You care for us. you got our backs. Uh, you're not coming after us, um, making our lives difficult and hard. But you're trying to encourage us and move us in a direction that is good for us. So thank you for these stories in your Bible. We just ask as we go through them that you help us hear your message uh, in such a way that we understand more who you are. So as things happen in our lives and we try to figure out your Bible, we can always go back to your character. Your character being you are for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.